Welcome to the Ascend Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. Each week we delve deep with some of the brightest and most forward thinking, out of the box minds in health, consciousness, mindset, and spirituality. This show inspires our listeners to improve their body and mind, and our intention is to fuse and unlock the conscious warrior and shift the balance in the current paradigm. Hey, what's up, guys? In this episode of the Send Podcast, we're joined by Hamilton Salfer. This is another great treat of an episode, to say the least. However, each week, we have very deep conversations with all different types of people, from the Iceman Wim Hof, inspirational, motivational speaker, Prince Ear, to Stephen K. Hayes, who spent 10 years being the bodyguard of the Dalai Lama. But in this episode, Hamilton has been learning from master shamans deep in the Peruvian Amazon for the last 12 years. His story since then has been pretty much remarkable and now thousands of other like-minded people are taking that big leap and are visiting the Amazon to seek out the ancient medicine the ancients called the vine of the souls. If you want a bit more of a primer about what ayahuasca is and some background knowledge of it and its amazing healing capabilities, I definitely recommend checking out our two-part episodes with Michael Sanders, episode 9 called Ayahuasca Fostering Human Connection and part 2 of that episode called The Vine of the Souls. But in this podcast, we get very deep from the other side of the table, the side of the shaman. Hamilton is by far the leading Western expert in ayahuasca and its ceremonies, having lived, studied, then mastered the particular area of shamanism. And he's carried out over 1,200 ceremonies. Yes, that's right, you heard it right. 1,200. Wow. (laughs) But at the end of this podcast, Hamilton also sees us out with a beautiful eager rose chant. And it's absolutely stunning to say the least. But before we jump in with this podcast, I would recommend heading over to the website, the sendbodymind.com, and checking out the great little three minute video about the ayahuasca experience as it really sets the scene and tone for this podcast. And also, please don't forget to leave us a review of the podcast and let us know what you think. But this podcast is definitely another conscious, expanding episode, and I know it's a good one. So without further ado, Hamilton Salva. Hey there, Hamilton. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Oh, we're fantastic. Fantastic. How are you? Same. Same. Equally, equally good. Oh, great. Well, I would just like to say welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. No problem. So, Hamilton, what made you decide that you're going to travel to the Amazon jungle to seek out shamanism? And what were you thinking exactly in that moment? And what made you decide to completely drop what you were doing and search for this new existence? Oh, in my case, it was pretty simple, really. Um, I was looking for direction in my life, and the direction came in the form of visions and a very, very strong calling, premonition dreams and a very deep connection to this uh, kind of altered or other experience. And as soon as I started to have those experiences, which spontaneously started around the age of 23, it became very clear that that was becoming a life path and a direction And so uh, even though I had very little background in it, once it first started to happen to me, I was looking for a way to formalize my own understandings and also go deeper into the experiences I was having. So what was the journey like to find a shaman, like to practice? Oh, the journey is intense. You know, shamanism does not uh, follow Western logic, Western rules, Western laws, Western concepts. And so I had only grown up in the United States and was filled with those understandings and, and those paradigms. And so when I went to go search, you, the very first thing is that it's a search. It's not a Google search. It's an earth search. And you go walking around the planet, you know, bus to bus, train to train, plane to plane, looking for the place you end up that, uh, that works for you and also where you get accepted. And especially yeah. if you're coming from the outside, meaning not from a bloodline lineage, like where your parents or grandparents are in the arts, then it's very, very hard to get accepted. And yeah. so, uh, you know, the journey was vast just to get down there. And then uh, it ultimately took me into the Amazon. And uh, the Amazon, you know, provided its own sets of challenges. And, and it was fraught with fear and danger and life-threatening situations. 
And ultimately, I, I found the, the people I was looking for. But um, it's extremely difficult, I would say, just incredibly difficult to be able to find a true lineage or a true path. Yeah, I was going to say it's probably not the best thing just to set off and hope to stumble upon a shaman. No, no, it's just doing that could result in extreme danger for you. Yeah, but um, when you found the shaman, what was it like to communicate and engage with this newfound culture? Like, did they even speak English? No, no, they didn't speak English wow. at all. No, I was living in the when I finally found the the shamans that I was going to work with. I was living deep in the Amazon from the city that you could fly into is another eighteen to twenty four hours depending on the time of year to get to where the shamans were that I was working with and also, you know, living nearby. And so um, language, no, they speak a dialect of Spanish. Uh, They don't even speak normal, what you would think of as like normal Western Spanish. They speak a dialect that's mixed with a bunch of tribal languages, uh, as well as kind of the more formal language of Quechua and also Brazilian Portuguese uh, vocabulary. And so it's very difficult to understand. It took me a number of months to be able to fully communicate with everybody, and uh, I would just say that the initial experiences were terrifying and filled with incredible hardship. Wow, that's amazing! The communication process sounds very hard. But in your first week, like when you were settling into the culture and being integrated into the shaman's methods, what was that like? Oh man, like you know, first getting into it is is you know, like I said, just dangerous and life threatening. I mean, the yeah. week isn't what it's really about. I mean, to be able to get to the levels where I really considered myself a very proficient master took between uh, seven and 10 years. My wow. formal apprenticeship was very, very short. So it's, the time frame isn't exactly like a week or two weeks or even a year. It's more like, you know, years to decade to, you know, wrap your head around the entirety of their understanding the use of the plants. But really for me, it was like a rebirth. It was, it was like being a baby again because everything that I had learned in my life up until that point was uh, no longer really applicable in a direct way to life in the Amazon. Life there is more frontiers. You live off the land. You have to know the land. You have to study the land. And the children and the adults there obviously do that from babies all the way through the entirety of their life. They're part of the environment. And I was an outsider coming into that. And so initially, the the you know init- kind of like the initial parts of my training were simply to get a grip on just living in the Amazon and kind of thundering my body and my brain with all of the extreme circumstances that the shamans put you through. Wow. Well, Helen, I, I presumed a shaman had not worked with Westerners before they agreed with you. Like, were the shamans reluctant to hand over all their years of experience and wisdom to you? Yeah, you know, there were, kind of when I first arrived there in 2001 and 2002, there hadn't really been an explosion of the interest in the shamanic arts. And so it was just kind of a, a backwoodsy, you know, folk kind of uh, frontier settlement kinds of practices. You would find them in the cities in some places, but a lot less than what you would find in like the, the little townships and stuff like that. And the wisdom was considered something that was supposed to be held entirely by their people and not shared with the outside world. And so um, getting accepted came with a lot of resistance from others that did not accept my uh, kind of my my entrance into their world. And so it actually was very problematic and became very problematic for the shamans that trained me as well as, you know, for myself. It's really good that they, they taught you, they, they accepted you and taught you the ways, which would probably only normally being passed down through family as well. Yeah, I mean, it was only family lineages, and every now and then someone could come in from outside, but always from their own culture, and after they had established a very strong relationship or friendship and loyalty with the shamans, and in my case, it took almost two years to be able to establish that with them before they started to teach me, but what was most interesting about it was that they didn't just teach me the way you would think of, like, Western education. They teach you through apprenticeship, which is really just about following them around and hanging out with them and learning their ways through observation and interaction. But specifically in the case of, you know, ayahuasca shamans, they have this incredible visionary substance that they use to put you into visionary scenarios that they teach you through. And so it's like going into an alternate reality where that reality has total impact on what happens in your normal physical reality, but that sort of altered or other reality being the place where they actually train you. And so in the ayahuasca arts, the training's even longer because you have to first learn that entire world and then 
learn how to navigate it, learn how to, to master those visionary spaces and to not get overwhelmed by the intensity of the experience. Yeah. One, one air story that I heard you say somewhere was that actually saved the life of fellow shaman and that was a big part of the acceptance. Yeah, Julio Jirena Pinedo, when I first met him, was in his mid-80s. He was about 85 at the time, and he was ill. And the other shaman in the area, Alberto Torres Davila, was off on a hunting trip. And so all the people there live off the land, you know, not like a sport hunting trip, like a hunting yeah. trip to feed the family. <laughs> and they would usually go five to seven days, you know, and, uh, and then come back. And so he was about five days away when Julio fell ill, and there was no way to get him out of the forest from where he was living. And so I ended up healing him. And through that process of healing him, I was finally accepted. It was sort of a repayment for what he thought was having saved his life. Wow. That, that must have been crazy. Like, I think I heard you say as well that like you had to suck the blood out of the shaman. Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was an odd experience because it was the first time I was really engaging on my own without another shaman overseeing me in a very supernatural experience. And so his leg was very swollen, and I had to, you know... In essence, they do a, a healing called a chupala, which is like a sucking. Like you, you prepare the area once you find where the problem is, and then you literally you put your mouth over it and then suck it right out of the flesh. And uh -huh. uh, but the skin's unbroken, and so in your imagination, you have to imagine it that there's there's no bleeding, right? The skin is totally normal. There's no wound. There's no sore. There's no open bleeding. Anything. It's just like a normal leg, only very swollen. And then as you spit out what you're sucking out of the leg, the leg goes down in size, but, but the saliva that gets spit out of the mouth and the sort of phlegm that's associated with it gets filled with blood. And as you spit that, that out, the leg starts to heal and the, uh, the affliction goes away. Well, that's absolutely crazy, especially when you didn't have a clue really what you're doing. Probably. No, not at all. No, I had no training at that time. I mean, somebody just had to jump in and help him out. We were, it was a, you know, emergency field situation. We were, yeah. you know, deep in the forest. There was no way to, to, uh, you know, get outside attention. And so it was just, it was just on, you know, it was, it, it's a very yeah. weird vibe. Like the energy in the space changes. It's not like your normal room with the air that's just kind of stagnant or, or just, you know, hanging. It's more like uh, like all the hair on your arms and legs stand on end. You feel this like super electricity in the space. It's as if the, the whole air is ionized. It's really odd and it is certainly mystical in its nature. And, you know, over the years that I was there, it was something that I was able to see and participate in maybe 15 or 20 times. Well, something I'm interested in is like, I, I, my thinking is, like, I was thinking we actually thrust into a ceremony or were there like certain boundaries like, say, as an apprentice where you couldn't experience yet? Oh, there are, there are levels for sure. When you go into the oh. training, you get brought in what they call as a nuevo nacido, which just means like a newborn. They oh. consider you like a newborn baby in the arts, and then little by little by little, they introduce you to the different plants that they use and the different ceremonies and rituals that they use to create the states of consciousness that allow for these kinds of mystical experiences or healing experiences. And so, yeah, over the years... You know, it, it takes, like I said, years and years and years for them to be willing to open up the totality of their knowledge base and then also let you learn beyond them. Um, you know, and it, it's it's more than just a notion of like a job. It's a life path. It's a it's something that you're fully dedicated to. And, you know, the, the educational methods, like I said, are something much more akin to how it was on on Earth, you know, three, four hundred, five hundred years ago than uh, the way it is today. Mm. Wow, interesting. So I imagine like there was a day where the, the master shaman decided it was right for you to partake in this ayahuasca ceremony. But I'm curious, what was your first experience of ayahuasca like? How did how did it take place? Oh, the, the first experience of ayahuasca was out in the forest when I was looking for my apprenticeship. And, um, you know, it was in the visions of that ceremony that I realized I had found my apprenticeship. I had oh. found something that was so intense more or less unknown in the Western world. Uh, the experiences were so mind-blowing and so beyond anything, literally anything I had ever experienced in my life. And I had experienced great adventure from extreme sports to uh, death-defying illnesses to 
you know, all different kinds of near death experiences I had had, as well as, you know, other physical scenarios in my life from assaults and things that were, and it made everything pale in comparison. Everything, like nothing in that, after that first ayahuasca ceremony, it was as if nothing had reached that level of incredible and, and real and intense and, and fast and overwhelming all at the same time, including the, you know, the, the otherworldly experiences of the visions themselves kind of all happening. And the experience was so, what I think of as whelming, it was so, so amazing that, um, you know, I wanted to continue to do it, but not amazing because it was positive. The, I would say 99% of the first experience that I had that lasted about five hours to six hours was about four or five hours of complete and utter hell. And uh, thinking that I had been poisoned and was going to die in the Amazon, as well as vomiting and defecation and extreme visions and hallucinations and, uh, you know, very warped and odd states of consciousness. But that ultimately ended in this almost total life recapitulation and catharsis that allowed me to kind of revisit almost every experience that I had had in life. It was as if I walked an entire timeline from my original memories to the present you know, the present oh. day being 15 years ago. And, um, and it just made sense. It made sense that this was like true magic, that this was real uh, mystical arts in the world, that this was living akin to the stories of Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. And it was something that at that time in my life I was absolutely fascinated by. Wow, it's amazing. I think we should um, fast forward a little bit. Is it right that you've actually carried out over 1,200 ayahuasca experiences? Yeah, yeah. Over the years, I uh, when I was living in the Amazon, I was living there for about 12 years straight. And I would participate in, you know, on average, or a little bit more of 100 ayahuasca ceremonies a year. And so wow. it all averaged out to about 120 ceremonies. But like I said, it was something that I was completely dedicated to. It was what I had dedicated not only my profession, but also my own personal learning path to. And so it was, uh, it was lifestyle. It was just what we did. Mm. Wow, that's so deep. So I was thinking if, if one ayahuasca experience is similar to 30 years of psychotherapy in a cup, what does 1,200 experiences feel like? Oh, man, I think 1,200 experiences feels like... Um, you know, an opportunity to fully go into your own consciousness and explore your own consciousness and map it and wow. uh, come to understand consciousness at a much more universal level and know how to be able to use that to heal. And, you know, having explored extreme visionary scenarios for a very long period of time, as well as doing that with literally tens of thousands of people, that um, what really it is is just a vast and broad knowledge base of the human experience and the human predicament through life and understandings of how you can actually use consciousness to heal, you know, our, our other, or even make, just create life change. Our sort of normal healing modalities all start beyond consciousness. It's, it's already built on consciousness. And really up until now in history, we've never had a way as a collective group, as human beings to be able to, access our own consciousness, and then be able to reprogram it. And I think what 1,200 ayahuasca ceremonies gave me, plus my experience in the healing arts and consciousness arts, is now the ability to reprogram my own consciousness and show other people how to be able to do that as well. Oh, it is unique when you gain that conscious connection with yourself, isn't it? It's perfect. Yeah, I mean, I would say that you know the learning experience has continued to grow, and in the last year, I finally gained the ability to really feel like the brain is a tool and it's something that I can use and utilize the same way you would think of driving a car or utilizing your computer. And that that's a kind of an ability of brain awareness and uh, consciousness capacity, like I said before, that we just didn't have. And, you know, I think mm -hmm. it came from really pushing the arts as hard as I could for 15 years and, looking to consciousness as a, as a response to the inner questions that always plagued us. Like, what is life? What is the universe? Who am I? Why am I alive? What's happening? And most importantly, why do I feel like there's something kind of deeply inherently wrong or amiss 
when I watch news, when I look at the world, when I hear of war, when I hear of all of this, the perpetuation of violence and suffering, and then I look at medicine and see how many people are suffering mentally, and then I look at at our lives itself when we're in competitive systems and we need to be even better at what we do and we don't have the skills to to fully do that, you know, it makes me think that, um, you know, it's finally time. It's time for us to be able to access our own consciousness and literally reprogram it. Yeah, certainly. I agree completely. How long after, after your 1,200 experiences of ayahuasca, is there a certain journey within the experience that stood out to you more than any other? Yeah, you know, I think the, uh, the journey that stood out the most out of all of them uh, was the one where I was finally ranked as a master shaman. Because during that period of time, uh, you don't know that it's going to happen. So you're in a complete uncertainty, and the Amazonian training style is to keep you on the verge of life and death the whole time. Wow. And so they want to push you to, uh, to be able to maintain coherent consciousness through all aspects and sort of acceleration of human experience all the way to the verges of physical death. And, uh, and so through that period of time, there's great uncertainty and you're living really right on the edge and you don't know if you're going to make it or not. And it's a constant doubt. And not making it means uh, in the Amazon that you, you either quit and leave in a state of kind of disheveled insanity or you die. And, uh, and that's, you know, very, 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 it's scary in many ways. And so the night that, uh, that that ceremony happened, it was something that I had been working towards and looking forward to for a long time. And I didn't really understand what the process would be because the shamans that taught me never told me beforehand what was to be expected of what was to come. It was just considered accepted that you would live through it or not. And um, so when I went into that ceremony... It was incredible because it was a what I learned later was kind of like a ranking ceremony and that had never happened before. And so the ceremony was different to any other ceremony that I had been in. The visions were all about uh, the shaman sharing wisdom and knowledge and capacities and know-how through the entirety of the night. So much so that you feel it like literally filling up your body all the way to the point that you feel so full that you want to vomit and then you know you can't, that you actually have to keep all of that inside the body and somehow not expel it when the, you know, the visions come literally hundreds of second and they're filling you, you know, for hours and hours and hours on end. And so it was a, it was sort of a test of virtue to not expel the, the wisdom that the shamans were bringing to me in that ceremony and to be able to hold it. And then to have the you know ultimate culmination be of that the ranking to master shaman, and I kind of knew that I had uh, I had made it. You know, I knew that that at least formal apprenticeship had come to an end, and a new chapter was going to begin, and uh, it was very satisfying. Something way more than a new chapter, I would say. <laughs> um, so through this experience like you were compiling together this whole collective consciousness of literally everything that the universe can throw at you at once and you have to absorb that. Yeah, pretty much. That's kind of how it works. Wow. Yeah. The, uh, the ayahuasca process, the learning process is all about um, literally reprogramming your brain and learning how to be able to, to hold you know, all of it. All of it, the universe, your universal understandings, your finite understandings, your psychological understandings, your sociological understandings, and like literally everything you would need to be able to, um, you know, run ceremonies, hold ceremonies under any kind of duress and any kind of uh, situation that your patients would provide you. And so in the ayahuasca ceremony, you don't have very many uh, tools at your disposal to be able to support and help people. And so you have to be able to use sound to be able to shift the consciousness of the participants and yourself to move everybody out of, you know, problems and difficulty. And to do that, you have to be able to internalize, you know, all of these very wide and vast states of consciousness. And so, um, yeah, basically everything the universe throws at you, you have to be able to hold, internalize and deal with at a peak state of consciousness without getting overwhelmed. I was thinking um, that, like, you must fear that. But then again, you transcend a lot beyond the fear and you transcend beyond yourself into this whole new virtue of helping everyone and giving so much more value to everything instead of just you. So you become like an unknown entity 
but a vessel for this whole conscious energy towards everything. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what happens. You know, the role of the shaman is to become a vessel or a channel that spirit can flow through. And I think of spirit as the movement of the forces within the universe. You know, and I think people, humans, gave them uh, shape and form and name and mythology. But I think what they're really talking about is just the way the psyche works and consciousness works in association with the whole universe. And, um, you know, I, I think that's a hard study to fully grasp because it's much more philosophical, but it's not a kind of philosophy that we really understand in the West. It's much more like operating system. You know, it's much more like a computer's operating system. It's how you function and how you learn to, you know, really stay alive in the face of incredibly strong forces. Colin, I was wondering as well, like through all your times of drinking ayahuasca, has there been like any vision or experience that stood out for you? Like individual vision or experience. Yeah. You know, I think um, for me, one of the, the experiences that was most important was uh, finally transcending the psychological programming of duality. You know, wow. duality is a comparative state inside our minds that understands via a comparison to another form that represents an opposite. So light versus dark, good versus bad, up versus down. And uh, that's very deep sort of human psychological programming that also causes people an extreme amount of suffering. And I was in a ceremony once, not with ayahuasca, funny enough, but I was in a ceremony once. And in that ceremony, um, I went through a four-hour vision that allowed me to come to a final uh, recapitulation and conclusion of that dualistic programming within my own brain and uh, really allowed me to achieve what I had been trying to achieve for the entire 15 years. And then that broke open the uh, ability to create activated balanced consciousness, which is the new consciousness shifting program that I created that kind of takes the Amazonian arts to a whole new level and no longer requires the use of sacred plants. Wow. How long, if I just touched on before what we were talking about before, um, when you were this whole collective universe in one, was there, after the whole experience, was there any questions left to answer or had everything been answered for you? I think that there are always questions left to answer, but the questions are now the same questions that, uh, you know, really plague science. They're the same questions that plague the entirety of humanity. It's how do you, how do you take these awarenesses and understandings and turn them into something that's practical that other people can also achieve and experience without having gone on the same journey that I went on. Yeah. You know, and so, so I think my, my greater goals, you know, and my greater visions now move beyond the individual healing arts and they move to a much more uh, collective expression where we could see, you know, tremendous transformations in consciousness and an understanding of the consciousness arts as a daily applicable uh, way of approaching life. And what I found is that the consciousness is a, a medium through which we experience literally everything. It cannot be separated from our perception. And, uh, you know, once you see the entire universe in the way that it's shaped and it's made within your own being, the question becomes, how do you model that for other people so that they can have similar experiences and uh, consciousness can continue to evolve within, this, within humanity, on the planet, within the species? Mm -hmm. Something I was wondering is, as, like, as a shaman, are you like moving through these other dimensions? Like, are you encountering like, these different sort of beings? Oh, always. You know, yeah. I think that the idea of dimensional travel or astral projection travel is uh, just a basic prerequisite in the Amazonian arts. You have to be able to have those uh, capacities. You have to have visionary capacities where that's possible. You have to be able to, you know, see and interact with the different entities and spirits that are part of uh, the ceremonies. And in the Amazon, it's not just the ayahuasca, which is super important to understand. The, the liquid ayahuasca, the tea itself, is considered a bridge to the spirit world. It's considered a, the, the bridge for those shamans and the participants to be able to see and interact with the beings. And so it's not just the shamans that have that experience, but it's literally almost everybody who participates, mm. you know? And so it's a, a collective visionary experience. I mean, in the ceremonies that I would hold, I would hold usually ceremony for 20 to 40 people at the same time as, you know, one large uh, collective experience. And 
we found that the visionary experience in the collective consciousness of the group itself would often be shared. Often people would see each other inside their visions and they would be able to communicate and continue the communication beyond it. People would often see the exact same spirits or entities in the visions. And uh, that, that, I would just say that that was literally common. I was enthralled there. <laughs> Um, I think like the dimensions in my eyes are like all, all these other world adventures which has taken our learning curve to the next level under the wing of this inner being and it's a beautiful connection to have with yourself and it makes me wonder like would you consider shamans to be a part of the spirit within like a pure state of consciousness I don't know I think the shamans find that you know I think that they're much more people in their own right and, uh, you know, as just as sort of like normal people who just have a, you know, a, a, a different job than most people in normal society, I guess, <laughs> have experiences far beyond what uh, others would consider sort of normalcy. But as people, I think the shamans are very, you know, normal in the sense of wanting to live alongside their communities and having similar experiences as others in the community. But the states of consciousness that they reach inside no longer is separate from spirit and the shamans don't live in a separation from spirit. And I don't really think that, uh, you know, people do in general. I think there's just a misunderstanding of what that spirit is. And, uh, you know, I think the more closed minded we are and the more cut off we are, the less capable we are of accessing this greater beyond this huge unknown. And I think the spirit world and these astral dimensions represent that great unknown. And I think, uh, you know, beyond the frontiers of our current understanding of science also provide that great unknown. And, uh, and the visionary landscapes, as you said, accelerate the learning process and allow people to access greater information and ultimately transform themselves. Wow. So how can someone look to map their own consciousness with these entities? Uh, you know, I mean, in the process of, a, of an ayahuasca shaman, the way that they do it is with lots of ceremonies. And I think for Westerners, what I would recommend is the consciousness shifting program that I created. I mean, yeah. I created it for, for Westerners because I knew that they wouldn't have the opportunity to go, you know, around the world and participate in the number of ceremonies that would be necessary to really be able to have that experience. And so I created a program that I call Activated Balanced Consciousness or ABC, which purpose is to uh, allow you to map your own consciousness and then be able to expand it to your totality. So every part of your of you, of your body and your brain would be working together to maintain these higher states of consciousness and then uh, reap the benefit from them. Mm. So, so let's say like when you experience like enough plant medicine, it must like completely shape your paradigm and the rules which you abide by as well. But how did that like fit into your existing beliefs before the plant medicine and how did it shape afterwards? Oh, and in my case, I didn't have a real understanding of the psycho-magical or the mystical no. or the, you know, mythological. I had no real understanding of those expressions of the imagination. And so I experienced a paradigm that was very close-minded through my youth. And, um, you know, as I awakened to the sacred plant ceremonies and the greater visionary context, what I experienced was a continuous awakening. You know, I continued, you know, the, the shamans never called it learning. They called it discovery. Mm. And so they're only interested in what you discover. And I really like that idea because you're discovering more of the universe you live in. And you are part and parcel of that universe, right? You're the one having the experience. It's your body. It's your consciousness. It's your brain. And it's your visionary experiences. And so, you know, the very first thing that I received was an open-mindedness to start to explore and a release of arrogance that I thought I knew what it was that I was already exploring. You know, you don't really know the unknown until you're willing to let it be unknown, which means having no thought at all about what could be coming and just training yourself to be able to, you know, confront and deal with and uh, do so in a very masterful way, whatever it is that comes up. You know, and I think that was really a key element to this whole experience was to, uh, you know, be able to open my own mind and then release the precognitive experience of trying to understand the future before the future came and realizing that the future was, you know, a, a kind of unknown that was best left at that time in the unknown and then to explore it openly with the help of the shamans and the sacred plants. Mm -hmm. 
I was going to say as well, your journey through ayahuasca must have completely excelled your learning and discovery, like you said before. But do you think like human consciousness shapes the environment that we live in? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think of consciousness as the like most basic or seminal or root form of your uh, perceptive experience. So it's like, what's your source code? What's the deepest, deepest, deepest you? And then you look at your life and from the moment you wake up in the morning until the moment you go to bed to the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, everything in your life happens because of the decisions you make. Mm -hmm. And the decisions that you're making and the choices that you're making define the direction that you're taking. You know, and so when I look at that and I think if your consciousness has been limited by the nature of your life and that sort of the inherent difficulties, traumas and and painful experiences of life have shaped fear and then the fear becomes an active paradigm within your consciousness, meaning it's just kind of always present, like going back to that thing that I was saying is like that thing that's just deep inside that's just not right, like something is amiss here. I finally came to find that that problem is in consciousness. And so if you can, you know, map your consciousness and expand on your consciousness and and heal or solve that core problem, then all of a sudden your your brain has the ability to shape your life and shape the state of existence around you in a totally different way. Because you think about it like you you as soon as you become old enough to be able to make your own choices in the world and those choices be respected, which I think of as sort of young adulthood, you get to choose where you're educated or not. You get to choose where you work or not. You choose where you live. And as you do that, you, uh, you're shaping the entirety of your experience, right? If, If you look at your daily life as your own experience and different to that of every other person, it really is a single journey. And no one else is on that specific journey with you. And so your consciousness is shaping that journey. And the state of consciousness is shaping that journey. And it's important to understand that in really early childhood, like infancy, from the final stages of being in utero when the senses are already turning on through birth, through your first year of life, your consciousness is being programmed. And it's being programmed by the experiences that you're having, by the adults that are around you, by your immediate family. And then that, that programming goes in, but no longer with memory. So we don't access it, but it's mm-hmm. there. And it's teaching us our core fundamental understandings of even of how we make decisions and what we think of as, uh, you know, these dualistic systems that end up ruling our choices and decisions. And so I think it's incredibly important to understand that there is a direct shaping of your current life because of the state of consciousness that you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, our environment, I believe, is of our own creation, and the ayahuasca would put us certainly in the right direction, which shapes us in a right frame of mind. But what do you think are the two most limiting factors on the, humans, on the, on the state of human consciousness? Oh, the two most limiting factors on the state of human consciousness, uh, false beliefs slash delusions and fears. Mm. So I think false beliefs are very difficult to see through. They're common inside modern man and woman. They, uh, it's education that we received that has to do with very old ancestral um, education and, and belief systems. And unfortunately, they limit us in tremendous ways and also cause us extreme fear when our brains are programmed and our consciousness is programmed in uh, false dualities and fear paradigms. It creates Mm -hmm. tremendous limitation that makes us want to retract or pull back from life. And when you do that, you, uh, you know, you, you create a mind that isn't allowing itself to fully experience. It isn't allowing itself to fully engage. And then I think we see the modern social systems that are plagued with fear, now plagued with terrorism. I think it's very interesting and sad that we see in the world right now that a fear concept of war is global, right? Mm -hmm. There's a global fear concept of war. When I was growing up, there were pockets of terrorism around the world 30 years ago that you heard about, but there was not this global fear that the you know, most principal nations and largest nations on the planet would be 
you know, so deeply concerned with this concept. And so to me, I think that the global paradigm and social paradigm has become incredibly fear-based. And as long as it continues to be fear-based, that we're going to see the ramifications of that, which include terrorism, which include all sorts of uh, mental illnesses, anxiety and depression, uh, you know, based mental illness, which are all fear paradigm based illnesses and trauma based illnesses. And so uh, and P- like PTSD. And I, I think we're, we're just going to see more and more and more of that. And it, you know, I think is uh, fascinating and also, like I said, deeply saddening. And it saddens me tremendously that that's our current state of affairs. Mm. It's a shame when like fear has this pure hold over us and keeps us prisoner. And it makes me wonder like um that like there's so many different factors and ver- and so many different variables that does keep us on this limited train of thought. And something interesting to me, Hamilton, is like do you think the education process like has developed our mind into this very specific pattern of knowledge and understanding? Oh absolutely. You know, the the purpose of the educational system is to uh, create very specific shapes of individual human beings that support and help society. And so I think we have to initially look at what the motivation for that education is. The motivation is how to better engage and interact with society, which I think is very important. But when we look at the society as being you know, incredibly fear-based, we are patterning, patterning within our education that exact same fear. And if we really want and, you know, educated citizens that are very capable of not only fitting into society, but also helping it grow, which I think is incredibly important for global capitalist economic systems, because they're all based on the movement and the growth of the economy, that we have to have an education system that shapes the mind into our individual totality. We have mm-hmm. to celebrate that totality and really want people to absolutely be their best and recognize that each person has individual talents that give them, you know, an ability to do uh, different kinds of activities and jobs at an exemplary level. And that if we help people, you know, find those those passions and those truths within themselves, that they'll have a, a much better ability to reshape their mind beyond the educational process. I also think that um, when I look at the educational process, I see that it's a focusing of the mind. So the the child you know, at least in America, is really started to be formally educated at the age of four or five years old. And that's after the child has established a strong enough sense of self that they can be at a school environment and not be, you know, incredibly disruptive to that environment. They can follow along and continue to participate. So you get this shaping of a self that you had no real control over or say in. Right. You were born into a situation nine months in utero. You come out. Babies are are more or less incapable of doing most things for themselves. And then they start to get shaped through this interactive experience with nurture and with parents and, and family and siblings and then finally the greater society. Education then starts on top of that. And it's a honing and it's a focusing, which is ultimately consciousness limiting. But I I don't want to be critical of it because I also think it's important. I think it's important that we understand history. I think it's important that we understand, you know, basic science, even though it may not be applicable every day to our lives and jobs. I think it's important that we know basic mathematics. I think the the educational system is important, but there needs to be a supplement to it for consciousness expansion. There needs to be a supplement about you really finding you through that process. You know, there needs to be a focus on truth and on on the totality of each individual student and how you get that individual student to uncover within themselves his or her greatest passions and his or her greatest capacities. You know, and then you have, you have the, the totality of society and the educational process producing educated, whole, conscious human beings. Mm, I totally agree. Uh, something that really fascinates me is how like there is a big shift like at the minute in many people in society and they're all now looking for like these new modalities let's say like in a sense of like using different tools and systems to like expand the consciousness i was wondering like do you ever think about how this newfound sense of consciousness maybe even shape our dna or even human genetics for like future generations oh absolutely you know the most recent scientific studies are showing that everything affects everything. And I think that that's just a very basic physics model. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you are a body and a brain and these incredible organs and these incredible capacities of consciousness all at the same time. 
And so mm-hmm. as we're affecting uh, the nature of consciousness, we're also able to affect the nature of body. We've already been able to prove that we can change, uh, you know, the shape, of, the actual shape of brains, the actual shape of, uh, of the brain use and patterning. We're able to show that the, um, the different, you know, sectors of the brain uh, change in the nature of, their, of the amount of neurons that are in them and the way that they fire and the way that they create uh, mental cognitive capacity. And I think the more and more and more we explore that, the more command we're going to ultimately have over our bodies. And as mm-hmm. we do, the, the real reaches into the DNA, the real reaches into the molecular and atomic structures of our physicality will become, uh, you know, simply accessible. We'll know how to utilize them. It won't just be uh, a joyride anymore. You know, right mm-hmm. now I feel like we're kind of on the consciousness joyride, not really understanding how the body works and not really understanding yet fully how the DNA works, how, um, you know, evolution and natural selection works. And as we become more and more sophisticated, especially in the nature of our consciousness, I am sure that we are going to unveil, you know, understandings associated with that. And that's something that I'm, you know, very interested in participating in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your experience and journey has been incredible and I think it's led you at this certain point in time in your life in this present moment as well. But I was wondering, what's your understanding of the universe now? Let's maybe compare to what it was like before in your journey. I think my you know, early understandings of the universe were uh, still more separate, more limited, um, more requiring more uh, differentiation within my own brain to hold all of the information uh, consistent. And my experiences now is that um, the majority of what we call our problems in this universe come from ourselves and our species, not from the universe itself, independent of us, and that we have to really start to learn uh, how we fit into the universe, not how we're separate from the universe and how we observe it. We have to learn... um, you know, what our place in the universe truly is in terms of our physics as well as our mysticism and mythologies. And uh, that ultimately we're going to find that the universe is not an expression of separation, but rather always an expression of wholeness and that the universe is one. You know, I think uh, the Big Bang story of the universe teaches an idea of creation where there is uh, nothing and then there's something and then that something is no longer that one thing, and then it's all those things. <laughs> like It goes from yeah. the singularity to, oh, in like three seconds of time, there was you know, all of a sudden yeah. all these dimensions and all these star systems and all of these fields and all this creation of matter, and that's your scientific explanation, and your you know, ongoing present-day religious explanation is much more creationist in its notion. Yeah. But in both in both cases, they represent a story that's saying that somewhere along the way, everything went from one singularity to no longer singularity. And, you know, my current views on the universe is that that did not happen. <laughs> my current <laughs> views is that is that this is singularity and we're figuring that out. You know, my well, current views is that that uh, Big Bang and those different theories on the universe are still limited. And um, I think we're going to have a much better understanding of the universe within the next five years. But yeah. actually, I think the universe is a representation of oneness, even though we have the cognitive capacity to be able to express it as uh, separation, as me, that, this, you know, all of these different perspectives of separation, including omniscient separation. And I think so far what we have been mapping is not the the whole universe because of our limitations, but rather using the universe as a way of mapping our own ideas. The scientists come up with an idea and then they test it, and the religious philosophers come up with ideas and then they test it. And in both cases, um, you know, they're part of those experiments, and I think that needs to be taken into consideration. What a beautiful way of it completely elevate the conscious mind this whole thing and that we are the universe all of us together in this very moment and how we were both wondering if it would be okay to bring this conversation to an end with an icaros if you were okay with that sure sure what kind would you like there are many different kinds oh a very impactful one i'd say <laughs> okay an impactful one then uh well we were talking about ayahuasca so i'll i'll sing a cielo ayahuasca girl Strong.
such a powerful way to end this conversation and we've only just got the last thing we need to ask you is just where can people find you and what what are you currently working on yeah well the the best place to find me now is uh on hamiltonsouther.com and to look for activated balanced consciousness as well as uh blue morpho tours in peru where we have a center for you know ayahuasca ceremonies and healing experiences and um the, what i'm really working on now are programs that allow us to, uh, you know, experience our own consciousness, reprogram it, and become our own totality for our purposes of, uh, you know, greater mystical experiences, consciousness-based experiences, but also in the ways that we relate to and address modern daily life to uh, have a better life and uh, to be more successful in the modern ways as well. Mm. Well, I would just like to say thank you for joining us today and sharing your incredible journey. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you guys very much as well, and uh, I wish you the best. Thank you. Thanks, guys, for taking time out your day to boost your consciousness. But, guys, we really need your help. If you're loving the podcast, please pop over and leave us a review and tell us what you think. And also, don't forget to head over to our website at ascendbodymind.com and check out our amazing gallery of other great episodes. Thank you and have a great day. Join us next week in the next episode. Peace. Peace.